5: Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
4: As I said, this book, you know, it's not one of those where you're going to feel, you know, oh yeah, life is great, this is wonderful, black and I'm proud. you're not going to, I don't think uh, you really, you're going to feel that way um you all start and go into a lot of detail uh talking about slavery uh made me want to go reread uh incidents in the life of a slave girl um why did you spend so much time uh talking about slavery uh in black love is a revolutionary act
6: um if if you don't mind uh, i'd like to read the first few paragraphs of why um uh, So I'll just just read it real quickly. Why does the first recipe for black gender wars, which black gender wars is what we base the book around with the recipes. Um, So uh, we start with why does the first recipe for black gender wars start with slavery? And uh, the reason is that uh, the authors, and I'll just read the last paragraph, the authors take no pleasure in detailing the 500-plus years of terror, torture, rape, and murder of millions of African men, women, and children. However, it is absolutely necessary to dissect the genesis, the origins, and the birthplace of black gender wars to find real solutions. It took 500 years for the black male, black female relationship to get into this condition. It is unreasonable and illogical to think it can be repaired without examining the history that damaged it. So we had to, if, if you want to solve a problem, you have to start at the beginning. You can't start with uh, 20th century, the 21st century, you can't start with when you were born. You can't start with, uh, well, he's got a better job than I do, and that's why we fight, or any number of things, or I, I'm not slim enough, or I'm not tall enough, or I'm not buffed enough. None of that is the problem. The problem is our lack of understanding of the history that created the problem. And so it would to me it would seem to be pointless to start in the middle or start at the end trying to figure out a problem that began 500 years ago. So I just think it's really important to understand what the damage was and how we were damaged and how we've never healed from the damage. Uh, I can, so that's the beginning of the problem. That was the main reason. The second reason was to build empathy. And see what I noticed today, particularly today, with this massive integration and massive interracial dating and mating and breeding, is that black people, in my opinion, many black people have begun to see other black people through white eyes. They see it through the eyes of the TV set, through the eyes of of fiction, through the eyes of uh, entertainment, through the eyes of other white people, through the eyes of people uh, when they go to school. And, and, you know, we're looking at each other with white eyes. We're condemning each other. We're criticizing each other. We're putting each other down as though we're not part of the black race. And so I see between black men and women it's become a predator versus prey relationship. Who's going to be the strong one, i.e. who's going to be the one that does the preying the on? And so a lot of our relationships have become predatory. I'm going to see what I can get out of you. I'm going to see what I can get out of you. And then we wonder in the end why we can't stay together. So the second reason is to build empathy for each other. I, I'm hoping that by the time you get through the first let's see through the first perhaps 10 chapters maybe so 10 chapters or so maybe 12 chapters and we made them very short they're not hard to get through we have a lot of pictures <laughs> so you know uh we tried to touch on the base on the on the most important things about the slave trade about the transatlantic slave trade to build empathy you know a lot of us, and I didn't know this until I started doing research, I didn't realize that black slaves, male slaves, were raped also. So if you can just picture, once you start to hear and understand the, the degradation and, and, and sheer cruelty that black men and women experienced over a 400-year period, not over a two-year period, not over 12 years in, 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 in the so-called Jewish Holocaust, but 400-plus years then maybe you'll build some understanding and empathy for why that sister is damaged. It's a generational thing. For why that brother is damaged, it's a generational thing. So we wanted to try to create some empathy so the next time you see that black woman and somebody calls her a whore, you'll remember that, wait a minute, they've been calling my sister's whores for 500 years. I'm not going to do it in the year 2011. And the next time you see a brother that's struggling, with the system trying to work and feed his family. Maybe you won't be so quick to call him a deadbeat or to say he just don't want to work and understand that the black man has been struggling with this situation for 500 years. So what we're hoping to do was build empathy.
4: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information On the system of white supremacy. Today's date Friday, August 31st, 2018. So I have been told. This broadcast, our debut study session on Pamela Evans Harris. Co-author, second publication, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. Looking forward to the book read. It will be narrated by two of our cows investors. Uh, they'll be taking turns one during the first half of the book uh, and our other narrated during the second half. So uh, many thanks to them that will be repeated uh, throughout the reading. I will not have a whole lot to say as we do the reading. I'll be conceding uh, as much of my time as possible to playing uh, audio of Pam when she was on the program uh, talking about this book, specifically she was on so many times uh, i will take time to answer uh one question i think mr demry four uh and several other listeners uh we voted for many books on the cows uh and i know uh, at least one time black love is a revolutionary act was at least the second most voted for book uh from uh listeners in terms of what they wanted to read and the logic that i used with mr demry four and others was Certainly not that I didn't think the book was worthy of being on the book club was that uh, we were so fortunate to have uh, Pam with us. And she was so uh, extraordinarily generous with her time and so passionate about uh, discussing, learning, exchanging views on racism, white supremacy that I felt, you know, why would we do this on the book club when we can just, you know. Say, hey, Pam, come hang out and whatever questions listeners have or whatever questions I have, uh, we can just ask directly as opposed to us sitting around and thinking and wondering and questioning what the author meant or we don't understand this or how about this passage. We can just have her here directly. And she was here so uh, many times, I, I definitely think it's always better to have the author directly. That's the same logic I used with Dr. Welsing, why we haven't done uh, the ISIS papers uh, on the book club, was we can just have her here directly to ask any questions about the text or anything else. So that's the logic. And other than that, uh, Gus will not be talking a whole lot during this book study. It will mostly be me, as I said, conceding my time to Pam the Great. With that, we will get started. Black Love is a Revolutionary Act narrated by one of our cows listeners audio segment number 1
7: Black Love is a Revolutionary Act by Umoja cover designed by P Evans Introduction Do you remember the last time you saw a black couple holding hands in public a black man and woman making love on a TV or a movie screen, or a black stranger look you in the eye, smile, and say, hello, brother, hello, sister. Where did our black love go? What happened to the love between black male and black female that sustained us for 500 years of slavery and racist oppression? As the civil rights clock spine backwards, and Black poverty and unemployment skyrockets, the percentage of Blacks dating and marrying interracially has never been higher, and the Black male and the Black female have never been farther apart. In a post-integration society, has Black love gone out of style? We sincerely hope this book will help to answer that question. Prologue, The End of a Marriage Chapter 1, The End of a Marriage The Perfect Couple They met in college through mutual friends. The moment he saw her, he knew she would be his wife. After 20 years of marriage and three children, they still laughed at each other's jokes and cuddled like teenagers in darkened movie theaters. They laugh, too, whenever their friends and family call them the perfect couple because no marriage was perfect. Secretly, they are proud to wear the label because their union had survived the marital storms that sank much weaker vessels. As a daily reminder, an engraved plaque hangs on the wall above their bed. What God has joined together let no man put asunder. The unthinkable happens. On a cold, moonlit night in their quiet suburban neighborhood, a shadowy figure slips in through the partially open kitchen window. The peacefully sleeping couple is startled awake by a flashlight shining in their faces. An armed intruder, a powerfully built man, in a white Halloween mask, orders the couple to strip naked, then pushes the wife to the floor and rapes her at gunpoint. The husband watches helplessly, afraid they will both be killed if he resists. The rapist leaves in the early dawn hours, taking their wallets, wedding rings, and peace of mind with them. The ordeal lasts an hour, but it feels like a lifetime to the terrified, traumatized couple. The husband. The husband is emotionally devastated because he could not protect his wife from the armed rapist. He tries to comfort her, but eventually the weight of the ordeal consumes him. He begins to resent his wife for witnessing his lack of courage, manhood, and starts to project the feeling of rage and inadequacy onto her. He wonders if his wife did something to provoke the attack. Did the rapist look familiar, he asks. then reminds her that she had been unfaithful once during their marriage. Why was their house, of all houses in the neighborhood, singled out? Didn't he want her constantly to lock the windows before going to bed? His questions and barely disguised accusations initiate the first of many bitter arguments between them. The husband decides there was only one reason he wasn't able to protect his wife. She didn't deserve to be protected. His damaged wife becomes the major obstacle to reclaiming his manhood and self-respect. Lately, he finds himself flirting with strange women and taking their phone numbers. Sometimes he calls them from his office, other times from the privacy of his car. He has never once cheated on his wife, but he has also never felt like less than a man. The husband withdraws sexually because he is sure his wife despises him. The truth is, he cannot sustain an erection because he can't get the image of the man raping his wife. Out of his head. The wife. When the intruder rips off her nightgown, the wife cries out to her husband, even though she knows he can't save her without risking both their lives. She tearfully submits, praying that they won't survive the night. After the ordeal ends, the wife is completely distraught. She knows what happened was not her husband's fault, but he is the man. She is not. Had he made the smallest attempt to rescue her, she would have more respect for him. When he implies that the rape was her fault, her contempt and resentment mushrooms. She is certain he sees her as damaged goods because he never touches her anymore. The truth is, she doesn't want to be touched because she cannot get the image of her naked and frightened husband out of her head. He's a coward, she decides bitterly, and wonders why she never noticed it before. Thus, the deadly process of unraveling what was once a loving, successful marriage begins. The end of a loving marriage. The rapist is never caught or punished, and the couple never seeks counseling because they are too ashamed to admit that they need it. The husband and wife are so busy blaming each other, They have lost sight of who is really responsible. Less than a year after the rape, their marriage has deteriorated to the point where a divorce is inevitable. Try to imagine your son, daughter, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, wife, or husband being beaten, tortured, stripped naked, fondled, raped, or murdered right in front of your eyes. And there was nothing you could do to stop it from happening. And if you can't imagine that, imagine this. You are standing naked on a slave auction block. And there are dozens of slave traders randomly examining every part and every orifice opening of your precious body. And there was nothing you could do to stop it from happening to you. To understand the gender wars between black male and female, we must start where it all began, at the beginning. Black gender wars. After racism white supremacy, the biggest problem in black America is not crime, drugs, poverty, or inferior schools. It's the black gender war between black male and black female. Chapter 2. What are the black gender wars? The best place to start is by defining gender wars. Question What are gender wars? Answer Gender wars are the byproduct of a sexist culture where the male is pitted against the female and the female is pitted against the male, usually by more powerful people behind the scenes. Question Why are black gender wars a bigger problem than crime, drugs, poverty, or inferior schools? Answer, because crime, drugs, poverty, and inferior schools are symptoms, not the cause of our relationship problems. The real problem is the war being waged against the black community by the white supremacy system. The black male and female are like two feuding parents trapped in a burning house that was set on fire by a gang of serial arsonists. Even though their children are dying from burns and smoke inhalation, the mother and father are arguing and blaming each other for a fire they did not create instead of working together to put the fire out. Our mutual enemy, the white supremacy system, is completely responsible for the fire. However, once the fire is raging, our main priority should be to put the fire out or get out of that burning house, the white supremacy system. Question, how do powerful people profit from gender wars? Answer, Once the male and female are divided, they will soon be conquered. The gender wars between males and females create demoralized adults, children, family, and communities. This manufactured conflict allows the powerful elite to take advantage and take control of a divided population. Question. How are gender wars manufactured? Answer. By creating an economic and political system that artificially makes one sex, typically male, superior to the other. A sexist society views the exploitation and degradation of females as normal and desirable. Like most victims of injustice, abused females eventually rebel against male oppression, creating a disastrous effect on the children, the family, and society. Question, aren't gender wars normal for every culture? Answer, no. Gender wars occur only when sexism is present. There have been African and other non-white cultures where gender conflicts are non-existent because females have different but equally important roles. But there has never been a European culture that was free of sexism. Bottom line, Any society that promotes gender wars is setting the stage for its own destruction. Question, how are black gender wars and white gender wars different? Answer, white males and females will put their gender wars on hold to unite against their mutual perceived enemies or to benefit their group, race, under the banner of white supremacy. The exact opposite is true for black males and females who will blindly wage war against each other, even while outside enemies are devastating their children, families, and communities. Question, how did black gender wars begin? Answer, black gender wars began during slavery when slave owners pitted the male slave against the female, parent against the child house slave against the field slave, and light-skinned slaves against dark-skinned slaves. After our original African culture was destroyed during slavery and blacks were forced to integrate into the white culture, we began to imitate the dysfunctional relationship between white male and white female. To this day, the materialistic sexes and antagonistic white male-slash-female relationship has become the standard for most black relationships. However, it is futile and self-defeating for black males to imitate white male sexism because black males lack the power to effectively practice it. In reality, black male sexism actually weakens the black male's ability to overcome his race's oppression because it alienates the black female at a critical time when her full cooperation is desperately needed. In other words, the black male needs the support and respect of black females collectively to transform himself from slave Negro to self-respecting black man. Question, where are black gender wars most likely to occur? Answer. Anywhere and everywhere black men and women interact. At home, school, work, sex, play, church, even between two strangers passing in the street. Question, how many types of black gender wars are there? Answer, there are three types. Number one, male versus female. Number two, male versus male. And number three, Female versus female. Number one, examples of black male versus black female gender wars. Black fathers abandoning the black mothers of their children. Black mothers using children to hurt or financially exploit the fathers. Black males uplifting white females above black females. Black females uplifting white males above black males. The rising black divorce rate, the falling black marriage rate, the increase of interracial relationships for black males and females, domestic abuse and rape of black females and males, black neighborhoods that resemble war zones. Number two, examples of black male versus black male gender wars. Black fathers abusing, abandoning, or competing with their sons. Black males who encourage destructive ways in younger males. Black males who refuse to support or encourage other black males. Black men who betray other black men for ego, jealousy, or profit. Black men who pursue the wives of other black men and break up families. Black neighborhoods that resemble war zones, black men killing other black men. Number three, examples of black female versus black female gender wars. Black mothers abusing, abandoning, or competing with their daughters for male attention. Black females who encourage destructive behavior in other black females. Black females who condone sexism against other black females. Black females who demonize younger black females instead of mentoring them. Black females who attack or degrade other black females out of jealousy. Black females who refuse to speak to or be cordial to other black females. Black females who refer to other black females as bitches and hoes. Black females who refuse to support or encourage other black females. Black females who pursue the husbands of other Black females and break up Black families. Black gender wars are anti-family and anti-survival. The family is the foundation of every society on earth, and marriage is the legal, moral, and spiritual commitment a man and woman make to raise their children within the protection of a stable, committed home. Unfortunately, some Blacks feel a lifetime commitment is too old-fashioned, too confining, and totally unnecessary for bringing children into the world. This belief is illogical for three reasons. If a Black male and female cannot commit to staying together, it is unlikely they can or will commit to raising mentally sane Black children. The end result is uncommitted, disconnected baby mamas and daddies broken children, broken families, and a broken nation. The traditional marriage model adopted by the most successful ethnic group in America is being rejected by the least successful ethnic group in America, blacks. It is impossible to build strong business economic bases without building strong communities. Strong communities require strong families. Strong families require strong men and women who are committed to raising their children under one roof. We cannot build strong black families, communities, or strong business bases until we end black gender wars. We cannot end black gender wars until we understand the 13 recipes that created them who benefits from black gender wars and what we must do to end them. 13 Recipes for Black Gender Wars Number 1. Building the Perfect Slave Number 2. 500 Years of Justice Denied Number 3. Racial Memories Number 4. Slave Traditions Number 5. The Secret Shame of Slavery Number 6. The Post-Traumatic Slavery Syndrome Number 7. Racism, White Supremacy Number 8 integration. Number nine, false beauty standards. Number 10, degrade the black female. Number 11, demonize the black male. Number 12, interracial relationships. Number 13, pit the black male against the black female. Why does the first recipe for black gender wars start with slavery? I already know about slavery, but that was a long time ago. I got to protect my spirit from all that negative stuff. I got enough stress in my life. A comment made by a black female after hearing about this book. The authors understand completely. Some blacks are reluctant and afraid to deal with the painful topic of slavery. Some are ashamed of the history of blacks in America. Some feel being knowledgeable about slavery will hamper them on their jobs because they work closely with whites. Some are sexually involved with whites and feel it is too disloyal to think or talk about slavery. Some blacks resist the notion of blaming our past for our present condition and do not want to be defined or limited by a tragic history. Others simply don't know how to deal with their pain and anger in a non-destructive manner and avoid the topic altogether. That being said, the authors take no pleasure in detailing the 500-plus years of terror, torture, rape, and murder of millions of African men, women, and children. However, it is absolutely necessary to dissect the genesis, the origin, and the birthplace of Black gender wars, to find real solutions. It took 500 years for the Black male-Black female relationship to get into this condition. It is unreasonable and illogical to think it can be repaired without examining the history that damaged it. We cannot create real solutions if we don't understand the real problems. Anything else, including wearing more eye makeup, shinier clothing, being better in bed, more passive, more aggressive, more muscular, thinner, taller, shorter, being more college educated, making more money, driving a nicer car, joining a bigger church, etc., will not solve the problem between black males and black females. Just like a man with a swollen toe who thinks the toe is the problem because he can see it is discolored, and he can feel it is painful to the touch. So he focuses on his toe when the real problem is an undiagnosed case of diabetes. Until he understands that his toe is a symptom and not the real problem, he will not find a real solution to his problem. If we want to heal the black male-black female relationship, We must find the origin of our problems. Some of what you are about to read will and should anger you. Injustice always angers the man or woman of conscience. However, aimless anger is wasted emotion. But righteous anger, if challenged constructively and logically, can transform an entire nation. It is our greatest hope that our book inspires the intellectual warrior inside you who will fight for the revival and survival of Black love. Recipe number one, building the perfect slave. Chapter three, the transatlantic slave voyage. Black gender wars began with the kidnapping, rape, and murder of millions of African men, women, and children. Slaves were herded into dark holes of slave ships with their right foot shackled to the left foot of the person to their right. About 18 inches separated one layer of slaves from the next. Trapped with no fresh air, light, and very little food, lying in their own feces for six weeks or longer, some captives suffocated to death from being so tightly packed they were unable to move or breathe. The ones who survived the journey were subject to rape, beatings and starvation. They suffered from anemia, urinary infections, ulcers, scurvy, dysentery and other diseases from filthy water, rancid food and inadequate sanitation and exposure to rain, sun and extreme temperatures. An estimated 1 out of every 5 captives died before reaching America. In total, Over one million Africans died on the voyage to America from injuries, illnesses, suicide, and murder. Some starved themselves to death and others simply lost the will to live. Mothers and fathers jumped overboard with their children to spare them from an unknown and terrifying fate. There were occasional victories when desperate captives killed the crews of the slave ships and escaped. It is hard to imagine the sheer terror felt by those helpless African men, women, and children who had no idea where they were going or even why they had been kidnapped. Unfortunately, the worst was yet to come. 400 years of the most brutal system of slavery in known human history. The most accurate description of the transatlantic slave journey Hell on Earth. Chapter 4. Did Africans Sell Blacks into Slavery? In April 2010, Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. wrote a New York Times op-ed piece called Ending the Slavery Blame Game, where he lays a good part of the blame for American slavery at the feet of African people. Quote, Many elite Africans visited Europe in that era. It is difficult to claim that Africans were ignorant or innocent, End quote. Gates quotes the work of several white scholars, some of whom claim 90% of Africans shipped to the New World were captured by Africans, then sold to European traders. It is true some Africans were involved in the transatlantic slave trade, as were some Arab and Jews but it is illogical and anti-historical to place most or even half the blame for 400 years of American slavery on African people. It is a fact that America, not Europe, was the final destination for millions of African slaves during the transatlantic slave trade. Even if some elite Africans visited Europe, Europe did not build an African slave plantation system on its own soil. Therefore, Africans visiting Europe proves little other than some elite Africans ventured outside of Africa on occasion. The timing of this article shortly after Professor Gates was roughed up and arrested for breaking into his own house by a white policeman may or may not be significant, but it is certainly worth mentioning. Setting the record straight. Fact number one. When the transatlantic slave trade began, there were many tribal wars on the continent of Africa. Europeans took advantage of the political instability in Africa by pitting one tribe against the other and giving guns to the side they thought most likely would win. This divide-and-conquer strategy, along with superior weapons, guns, and gunpowder, allowed the Europeans to seize African labor, land, resources, and people. Fact number two, Africans did not sell their own people to European slave traders. Every African from the continent of Africa is not of the same nationality just like every European on the European continent is not French, but in fact may be German, Polish, or Italian. A nationality represents membership in a particular nation or sovereign state where people share a common culture, ethnicity, traditions, land, language, and national identity. For example, Nigerians or Ugandans are Africans of different nationalities, even though both are from the African continent. The Africans who sold people from other African tribes, nationalities, into slavery were selling the losers of their tribal wars, not their own family members, kinsmen, or people. Fact number three, if Africans are guilty of selling their own people, Europeans are guilty of the same crime. Slavery was so widespread in early medieval Europe that the Roman Catholic Church tried repeatedly to ban it. In fact, the word slave comes from "sklavos," which means slav, a person of Eastern European descent. Italian merchants bought and sold thousands of Eastern Europeans during the 1400s but were never accused of selling their own people into slavery because Italians and Eastern Europeans are not members of the same white tribes. When the Germans waged war against the French in World War II, they were not accused of killing their own people because the Germans are not French and the French are not German. It would be easy and accurate to describe Hitler's invasion of France as his failed attempt to enslave France. Yet, he was never accused of trying to enslave his own people. Why? Because the French and the Germans are Europeans of different nationalities, tribes. Fact number four, African chiefs were not the co-conspirators of European slave traders during the transatlantic slave trade. Africans did not lure Europeans to Africa to buy slaves. Europeans came to Africa seeking goods and spices and stumbled across an even more valuable resource, African slave labor. The participation of some Africans in the transatlantic slave trade does not alter one fundamental fact. Africans never shipped a single African to America. In fact, when word spread about the horrors of slavery abroad, some Africans tried to stop the kidnappings. There is no denying that Africans participated in the slave trade. However, it is historically and morally incorrect to make Africans the scapegoats for the European crime of slavery. The Arab, European, and Jewish slave traders who made the bulk of their wealth from slavery are the most accountable. When the transatlantic slave trade began, the European mentality had already evolved into a white supremacist mindset, and the idea of treating Africans as equal trading partners was wholly unacceptable. Rather than barter on good faith, European slave traders resorted to trickery robbery, kidnapping, rape, and murder. Quote, had the African needs and the European needs been considered on an equal basis, there could have been an honest exchange between the African and European and the European could still have had labor in large numbers without the slave trade and the massive murder that occurred in the slave trade. End quote. John Henry Clark, black historian. Fact number five, 400 years of slavery did not make Africa one of the richest nations on earth. There are no multinational black African corporations that were enriched by the transatlantic slave trade. However, there are hundreds, perhaps thousands of corporations in America and Europe, AIG, Etna, Lloyd's of London, J.P. Morgan Chase Manhattan Bank, to name a few, that built vast global empires on the backs of African slave labor and Africa's mineral wealth. Fact number six, the Africans had no role whatsoever in creating the American institutions that benefited from 400 years of slavery or in the rape, torture, and murder of African slaves. Africans did not rob African slaves of their language, culture, religion, history, or identity. They did not create or participate in Reconstruction, the Black Codes, the Ku Klux Klan, lynch mobs, chain gangs, or Jim Crow. Fact number seven. The transatlantic slave trade was Europe's first venture into globalization. The mass enslavement of Africans was a European global conspiracy that began in the early to mid-1400s and made the bulk of its wealth by selling and enslaving other human beings. Contrary to most Western history books, Adam Smith, 1723 through 1790, often called the father of modern economics, did not oppose slavery on economic or moral grounds, but used his free market economic theories to justify slavery. Adam Smith's economic theories encouraged a laissez-faire, lawless environment with few safeguards or oversight so slavery could continue unhindered by the non-existent morality of those who cruelly exploited African men, women, and children. The fact is, African slaveries provided free labor that built the coffee, cotton, cocoa, and sugar plantations in North and South America, the gold and silver mines, and the field and domestic labor that allowed the French, English, Spanish, Dutch, and North American Europeans to build international empires and enjoy the immense wealth that still exists today. Fact number eight, the transatlantic slave trade was unlike any other form of slavery. Before the European enslavement of African people, slaves were still seen as human beings and were allowed to eat their native foods, speak their native languages, practice their native religions, keep their family names, even marry, buy their freedom, and become citizens. The transatlantic slave trade was the first time slave traders deliberately and systematically destroyed the identity and the sanity of their captives, victims, in order to create a permanent race of slaves. The evidence of the greatest crime against humanity and known human history and still be seen among the psychologically devastated black population in America. Number nine, placing the blame for transatlantic slave trade on Africans is a crime second only to the slave trade itself. The African history taught by the Western educational system is the whitewashed version that paints Africans as gritty savages who sold their own fathers mothers, sisters, brothers, children, and neighbors to European traders for the price of a few trinkets. This was done to make Africans the scapegoats for European American slavery, the most brutal slavery system that has ever existed in the known history of mankind. Why are the Western media and academic communities so determined and so desperate To hide the truth about the transatlantic slave trade. Because every crime against humanity is linked to a criminal organization. And once the criminals are identified, massive reparations will be next. Fact number 10. If Jewish victims and their descendants receive reparations for a 12-year holocaust, and Japanese victims and their descendants receive reparations for a three-year injustice, it is logical that the descendants of the 400-year African Holocaust are more than entitled than the Jews and the Japanese combined, 26 times over. Quote, It has been important to present the matters above to dispel the notion of an African slave trade that involved mutuality as a general dynamic on the part of Africans. If we can accept the documented facts of our history above and beyond propaganda, we can begin to heal. We can begin to love one another again and go on to regain our liberties on earth. End quote. Oscar L. Beard, Consultant in African Studies. Chapter 5 terror, torture, murder, and madness, breaking in African slaves. African men, women, and children were whipped, beaten, buried alive under piles of insects, raped, dismembered, disfigured, blinded, branded, crippled, tortured, lynched, boiled in molasses, waterboarded, and burned alive. Some of this happened in the breaking in camp that were designed to destroy the will of African men and women who refused to submit to slavery, rape, and degradation. For striking a white person or reading a book, a slave's hand might be cut off. Runaway slaves were subject to a variety of punishments, severe whippings, a nose slit, an ear or a hand amputated, the tendons cut in one leg, the pulling out of teeth, branded with hot irons on the face, castrated, or sentenced to death. Tales of Terror, Torture, Murder, and Madness. Quote, In my father's time, and all along my mother's time, that's when they chained the colored people and cut them all to pieces with cat-o'-nine tails and sprinkle salt and pepper on them. End quote. Mrs. Holmes, First name unknown, former slave, Nashville, Tennessee, from incidents in the life of a slave girl, written by herself, Jacobs Harriet A., 1813 through 1897. Mrs. Flint, like many white Southern women, was totally deficient in energy. She had not strength to superintend her household affairs. But her nerves were so strong that she could sit in her easy chair and see a woman whipped till the blood trickled from every stroke of the lash. She was a member of the church, but partaking of the Lord's Supper did not seem to put her in a Christian frame of mind. If dinner was not served at the exact time on that particular Sunday, she would station herself in the kitchen and wait till it was dished and then spit in all the kettles and pans that had been used for cooking. She did this to prevent the cook and her children from eking out their meager fare with the remains of gravy and other scrapings. The slaves could get nothing to eat except what she chose to give them. Provisions were weighed out by the pound and ounce three times a day. Dr. Flint was an epicure. The cook never sent a dinner to his table without fear and trembling. For if there happened to be a dish not to his liking, he would either order her to be whipped or compelled her to eat every mouthful of it in his presence. The poor hungry creature might not have objected to eating it, but she did object to having her master cram it down her throat till she choked. When I had been in the family a few weeks, one of the plantation slaves was brought to town by order of his master. It was near night when he arrived, and Dr. Flint ordered him to be taken to the workhouse and tied up to the joist, so that his feet would escape the ground. In that situation, he was to wait till the doctor had taken his tea. I shall never forget that night. Never before in my life had I heard hundreds of blows fall in succession on a human being. His piteous groans and his, oh, pray don't massa." rang in my ear for months afterwards. There were many conjectures as to the cause of this terrible punishment. Some said master accused him of stealing corn. Others said the slave had quarreled with his wife in the presence of the overseer and had accused his master of being the father of her child. They were both black and the child was very fair. I went into the workhouse next morning and saw the cowhide, still wet with blood, and the boards all covered with gore. The poor man lived and continued to quarrel with his wife. A few months afterwards, Dr. Flint handed them both over to a slave trader. There was a planter in the country not far from us whom I will call Mr. Litch. He was an ill-bred, uneducated man, but very wealthy. He had 600 slaves, many of whom he did not know by sight. His extensive plantation was managed by well-paid overseers. There was a jail and a whipping post on his grounds, and whatever cruelties were perpetrated there, they passed without comment. He was so effectually screened by his great wealth that he was called to no account for his crimes, not even for murder. Various were the punishments resorted to. A favored one was to tie a rope around a man's body and suspend him from the ground. A fire was kindled over him from which was suspended a piece of fat pork. As this cooked, the scalding drops of fat continually fell on the bare flesh. I could tell of more slaveholders as cruel as those I have described they are not exceptions to the general rule i do not say there are no humane slaveholders such characters do exist notwithstanding the hardening influences around them but they are like angels visits few and far in between End quote. Quote. Oh yes, sir. Marsh John good enough to us, and we get plenty to eat. But he had an overseer named Greenbush, which show whoop us if and we don't do to suit him. Yes, sir. He mighty rough with us, but he didn't do the whipping himself. He had a big black boy named Mose, mean as a devil and strong as a ox, and the overseer let him do all the whipping. And man, he could show lay on that rawhide lash. He whooped a nigger gal about 13 years old, so hard she nearly died. And all of us, afterwards, she had spells of fits or something. That make Marsh John powerful mad. So he run that overseer off the place and most didn't do no more whipping. End quote. Walter Calloway, former slave, Alabama. Quote. Slavery was the worst days was ever seen in the world. There was things past telling, but I got the scars on my old body to show to this day. I see worse than what happened to me. I see them put the men and women in the stock with their hands screwed down through holes in the board and their feet tied together and they naked the hinds to the world. Solomon, the overseer, beat them with a big whip and Massa, look on. The niggers better not stop in the fields when they hear them yelling. They cut the flesh most to the bones. And some, there was when they taken them out of stock and put them on the beds. They never got up again. End quote. Mary Reynolds, 100, former slave. From American Slave Trade. A slave having escaped from his master in the state of North Carolina within two or three years past, was seized and brought back by a being who, when requested by the master to name the reward he should render him for returning the slave, replied that all the compensation he desired was the satisfaction of flogging him. This being granted, the slave was bound to a log and the resounding lash applied, until the resentment of his executioner was satiated. The infatuated master then took the ensanguined lash himself and was about to repeat the process of flagellation when death, not then a king of terrors but a generous benefactor, a friend in need, rescued him from the intended protraction of his excruciating torment. In the state of Pennsylvania a considerable number of years ago, The proprietor of a furnace took of a black boy, a few years old, and in the presence of his distracted father, wantonly thrust him into the flames and melted metal, where he was instantly consumed. The Jews honor their ancestors by reminding the world about their Holocaust. We owe it to our ancestors to never let the world forget about the suffering our ancestors endured during our African Holocaust. Chapter 6, The Destruction of the African Male Slave Black men were not allowed to protect their women or be fathers to their children. Males were forced to watch their women and children raped, tortured, and beaten and were helpless to stop their suffering. The intent to destroy their confidence and self-respect as men. Quote, I admit the black man is inferior, but what is it that makes him so? It is the ignorance in which white men compel him to live. It is the torturing whip that lashes the manhood out of him. It is the fierce bloodhounds of the South and the scarcely less cruel human bloodhounds of the North which enforce the Fugitive Slave Laws. End quote. Harriet Brent, a slave who wrote the first autobiography written by a black woman, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, 1813 through 1897. Males were not allowed to be fathers or husbands, though many made the outrageous but futile attempt to protect their women and children. This dealt the black male a terrible psychological blow. A poor slave's wife can never be true to her husband, contrary to the will of her master. She can neither be pure nor virtuous, contrary to the will of her master. She dare not refuse to be reduced to a state of adultery at the will of her master. Henry Bibb, in his 1849 autobiography, Narrative of the Life and Adventures of Henry Bibb an American slave. Due to the relentless sexual assaults by slave owners, marriages, venereal diseases, and infections of the urinary tract were rampant among female slaves. These conditions were rare before the mass rapes of African males and females. Dr. Jones confirmed this fact in his article in the Medical and Surgical Journal in 1838. He wrote, Quote, Venereal disease and drunkenness among African slaves was rare. End quote. The African male slave witnessing the sexual degradation of the African female slave planted the first poisonous seeds of contempt for the black female because of her terrible shame and her inability to maintain her honor as a woman of virtue. The Slave Narrative of Josiah Henson, 1796 through 1883. In his autobiography, Josiah Henson recalled how, as a child, he saw his father viciously punished for attempting to stop the plantation overseer from raping his wife, Josiah's mother. Quote, The day for the execution of the penalty was appointed. The Negroes from the neighboring plantations were summoned to witness the scene. A powerful blacksmith named Hughes laid on the stripes. Fifty were given, during which the cries of my father might be heard a mile away, and then a pause ensued. True, he had struck a white man, but as valuable property he must not be damaged. Judicious men felt his pulse. Oh, he could stand the hold. Again and again, the throng fell on his lacerated back. His cries grew fainter and fainter until a feeble groan was the only response to the final blows. His head was thrust against the post and his right ear fastened to it with a tack. A swift pass of a knife and the bleeding member was left sticking to the place. Then came a hurrah from the degraded crowd and the exclamation, That's what he's got for striking a white man. Previous to this affair, my father, from all I can learn, had been a good-humored and light-hearted man. His banjo was the life of the farm, but from this hour he became utterly changed. Sullen, morose, and dogged, nothing could be done with him. He brooded over his wrongs. No fear of being sold to the far south, the greatest of all terrors to the Maryland slave, would render him tractable. So off he was sent to Alabama. What was his fate? Neither my mother nor I have learned. End quote. His autobiography, The Life of Josiah Henson, 1849, was read by Harriet Beecher Stowe and inspired her best-selling novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. The book was an instant hit in the North. Copies were sold all over the world. Henson went to England and lectured on his life as Uncle Tom, the slave. He published his autobiography, My Life as Uncle Tom, three times. Father Josiah Henson preached, lectured, and wrote until his death in 1883. A little-known fact of slavery, the rape Of the African male. It is common knowledge that African slave women and girls were raped by slave owners, but very little has been said about the rape of African men and boys. Another little known fact homosexuality was non existent in African culture before European colonization and sexual domination perversion. Male homosexuality and raping the males of a conquered people is a European tradition that dates back to ancient Greek and Roman cultures. If this historical fact is difficult to digest, consider the following. What better way to rape a man of his manhood and self-respect than to rape him in front of his women and children? The African female slave, witnessing the rape of the African male slave, planted the first poisonous seeds of contempt for the black male because of his terrible shame and his inability to protect his honor as a man. Did the rape of African male slaves plant the first bitter seed of black male homosexuality? We cannot afford to underestimate the catastrophic damage that was done to the manhood of African male slaves. At the risk of being labeled homophobic, we will not waste valuable time being politically correct when it comes to the topic of homosexuality. It is crucial that the descendants of slaves understand the psychological trauma that male slaves endured. Because the same dehumanization and emasculation process of black males that took place during slavery is still happening today via the law enforcement, incarceration, education, and employment institutions in America. Could the systematic psychosexual rape of African males over a 400-year period be the genesis, the root of black male homosexuality today? Quote, during the past 400 years, black men in the U.S. have been forced into passive and cooperative submission to white men. White men in this world area have at least a vague, perhaps unconscious understanding that after 20 generations, 400 years, male passivity has evolved into male effeminization, bisexuality, and homosexuality. These patterns of behavior are simply expressions of male self-submission to other males in the area of people activity called sex. End quote. Dr. Francis Chris Wellsing, The ISIS Papers, 1991.
4: We will stop right there. Context of White Supremacy. Black Love is a Revolutionary Act. Pamela Evans Harris, co-author of this book, many others. Uh, Sadly, she passed away earlier this year. She was a guest on this program more times than I can count. But uh, we are... Paying tribute to her life's work, certainly her attempted counter-racist effort, Uh, phenomenal writing uh, that she did with this text. Looking forward to getting to the second portion. The number to dial in if you have comments, questions, the number 641-715-3640, the code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pounds Press star six one, if you would like to participate. Looking forward to hearing comments, questions from listeners. Uh, any of the, if we have any folks, this is your first time reading. Black love is a revolutionary act. Uh, you can let us know if you are surprised that this much of the early portion of the text is focused on slavery the audio segment that we started with uh included why she did that which i thought was extremely important Uh, but we will go ahead and get to the first few folks who dialed in if you have comments questions you would like to share on uh, the first portion of the audio text Uh, if you dialed in with a hand up line should be open Proceed.
8: Yes, may I be heard? Greetings, Mr. Demrey. Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers and listeners. I was going to take a little um uh, moment to uh get my notes together, but you know, since I've read the book, I shouldn't need that. And I uh I was uh one of those that wanted uh, some of Pam's work, you know, in the book club. So, you know, I was surprised that you remembered that. But the <clears throat> the first thing that got me about this book, you know, was actually the beginning, you know, the um, the chapter one, uh, how the uh, rape happened, you know, to the husband and wife. And then what happened afterwards, you know, neither one of them getting counseling and then the process, the mental, uh, I guess, uh, you would say, uh, degradation or whatever, a process started happening with them. Although it was neither one of them's fault, but the process just started to happen. They started to blame themselves. And, you know, that was an interesting way to start because, you know, it. Uh, whoever's reading it, I mean, takes on a different perspective. You know, as a man, you know, I could see the, the husband, the emotional uh, devastation, you know, because he couldn't protect his wife. And most uh, men would probably say that even if the guy was armed, I think I would have went for him to make a attempt or something, get shot, you know, whatever, you can't take it, you know. But. You never know until you're in one of those situations yourself. And then the wife, how it uh, damaged her, you know, looking up at him uh, as a protector, you know, and then the eventual end of the marriage, um, you know, it's pretty devastating. I mean, I never forgot that the whole time after reading that, that beginning, you know, and I had to take a little pause before I went on with the book, really. But I just wanted to make uh, a couple of points. You know, I think we've covered four chapters, but maybe one point from each chapter. And then uh, what I generally think, and I think it's a good basis, you know, for the gender wars, because we have to have a starting point. And, um... When you think about the psychological impact that slavery had upon um, the African slaves, which eventually were the remnants were us African Americans, you have to consider, you know, the psychological impact through generations, because some of those uh, habits and uh, behaviors were passed on generationally i had to get a drink of water excuse me but so it uh it's the basis of the gender wars and then if you take time to see what she's saying and describing what they are and each individual's responsibility you start to get an idea of what's going on and I think she did an excellent job. I remember when she used to come on your show and talk, and I was so interested in what the 13 recipes for the Black Gender Wars were, and then to have it, you know, right in front of you. And then she'd them, and then go through each one individually. I don't think, I don't see how anyone could actually, uh, not agree with her assessment. Um, I, I don't know if I asked her anything, but the fact of, you know, no footnotes, you know, was kind of, you know, it had me going there for a while. I mean, but I painstakingly went through a lot of this stuff, you know, and looked it up. These people were real people, you know, like Harriet A. Jacobs, you know it's actually in a autobiography and uh, you know P- Pam and uh, the other co-authors uh a lot of pain stake in uh, research to come up with this and then to verify their point you know and <clears throat> this part where the the oldest, well i guess black selling other blacks but i'm sure you would probably have a lot of comments on that she cleared that up pretty good and then um, when we were actually subject to slavery and how the overseers or one particular black person would be told to beat another one. And then after he beat the 13-year-old girl so hard that she nearly died, then and then she had those uh, seizures afterwards, the master or whatever who ordered the whipping in the first place, um, it said he got in and then he ran the overseer. But that's only because that's his property. See, you have to uh, kind of just, you know, get that into people's head on what, you know, the psychological impact of that. And uh, I'll, uh, I think I'll pause there and uh, give somebody else a chance, and then maybe I'll come back a little late. Thanks, Greg. Much obliged, Mr.
4: Demery Four. I just want to insert, I remember the first time I read this book, I really wanted to read Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. Uh, I thought frequently we should read that for the book club. But, yeah, I'm remembering that. And just yesterday at the conclusion of Workplace Racism, I mentioned dr henry lewis gates <laughs> lo and behold he gets mentioned in the book club today hmm, incredible timing uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up and uh, there were difficulties tech issues again uh, so if you were trying to listen at black talk radio network or tune in uh, it's not working presently. Uh, I've been trying. I thought Mr. Reed was working overtime with me yesterday to try to get that figured out. And I thought it was corrected. And then whammo got me again. Suspected racist as usual. Uh, but just dial in. Uh, and again, folks can help out if you would like to message and let folks know we are broadcasting live and doing Pam's work, no less. You can dial in 641-715-3640. The code Five, six, four, nine, four, three, pound. Press star six1. Uh, if you would like to listen or participate, you can message, let folks know we are broadcasting, just call in for the live broadcast. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, proceed.
5: May I be heard?
4: Greetings, Red in Nevada.
5: Hello. Um,
9: hello, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I definitely appreciate the, um, the start of the book with the story about um, kind of the explanation of, or, you know, the breakdown of the perfect marriage and just how, even though, like, she didn't, it wasn't like, you know, a white person did the rape, it was just, it she still kind of inserted like white because there was the the white mask or what have you, um, and I did appreciate the part because I've I've not read this book before. Um, I did appreciate the part where um, she or the authors uh, spoke about the gender war and you know anti-family the in gender war being anti-family because I see that more and more. With how people are, especially victims, are kind of not. Um, they they feel like marriage is an antiquated um, agreement. But I like that that also um, the the part where she said, "You know," or the author said, um, "Well, marriage is it's it, it you can't really raise a child, or raise children." if you don't have that agreement within marriage. And it definitely brings a, a different side of it because just hearing a lot in contemporary, you know, commentary from other people who try to um, come up with solutions about racism and how it's like, oh, well, it's only about a piece of paper, but if you don't really have an agreement, then how can you have an agreement on how you should, you know, an agreement between the person you've had the child with, how can you have an agreement on, you know, um, You know, actually the raising of the child and I understand, you know, marriage is not the fix-all for the rearing, but I I still appreciate that part. And then um, there was one other thing, but I'll have to, um, I'm a little bit distracted. I apologize. So I'll have to um, maybe comment later when I just kind of go over my notes again and I'll meet my line. Thank you for allowing me to share.
4: Much obliged. Red in Nevada. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, Uh, if you have commentary to share, feel free. Greetings, Rob in San Diego. Uh, Greetings, us and callers and listeners.
10: I toned in a little late, so I didn't hear uh, the first three chapters uh, what I heard thus far, uh, did like, um, it sounds, uh, like the work is, uh, very well researched, uh, what stood out to me from the bit I heard was when she talked about how the racist man, uh, would, uh, rape, the sla black, uh, black female, and from that rape, the black male started to, uh, Harbor some disdain uh, for the black female, and the part about um, the racist man also uh, raping the black male, and the female um, harboring disdain toward the black male. <clears throat> and I liken that um, to today um, when the racist uh, engage in uh, sexual activity with the uh, black males and black females. And that's all I have right now. Thanks for taking the call.
4: Much obliged, Rob. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up—if you have commentary—proceed. Can I be yeah. heard? I heard both of you. Let's see. We'll get uh, our caller in the DMV area.
0: Uh, Hello to Gus and uh, all of the uh, callers and listeners. Um, This is uh, a black mom and wife in D.C. Um, I rarely get to participate live in the uh, the book club, but I was terribly, terribly devastated to hear um, about uh, the loss of Pam, uh, the great Pam, And, um, I just knew that I had to participate. I'd actually, uh, read this quite some time ago. Um, a few years now, I think, um, my husband had purchased all three of them when we first kind of started, uh, listening to the cows and had heard Pam um, on the broadcast. So, um, it's been some time and I've, uh, forgotten a little bit of it, but now just reading it again uh, just kind of brings it all back and just sort of the genius of, of Pam's commentary uh, throughout all of the broadcasts and in this, um, this text itself. Um, the only thing I really wanted to kind of comment on is uh, as a mom and wife, uh, I don't think that, and I myself included, certainly. um, I don't think many non-white Black people are really able to acknowledge um, our helplessness in this system. It's a very difficult thing to sort of come to terms with um, uh, because we do want to exude so much strength. And I like how uh, she parallels our experience, the African Holocaust, as she uh, calls it in the text, uh, to the Jewish Holocaust and how they constantly uh, ensure that their legacy and their history is, is, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess, um, regurgitated over and over and over again so that you never, ever forget uh, what happened to them. And that's something that we don't do that we we really fail to do. And understandably so because you don't want to continuously relive trauma over and over again. Um, But uh, I, I think you know, she proves the importance of that, um, because in terms of our relationships with one another, it is very important to understand how this sort of all began, uh, because without any sort of understanding of its inception, I I don't see how we can ever really find any sort of catharsis or really get any, um, any better understanding of the system. So... Uh anyway, I'm sort of rambling, but I I did just at least uh I am listening and um I just at least wanted to participate because like I said I don't often get to, but I am hoping to make a commitment um for Pam uh to listen live to these broadcasts of uh of her text. Uh so thank you. I'll, I'll meet myself.
4: Much obliged. Great to hear your commentary. Uh let's see D the... Other female caller who spoke up simultaneously, uh, if you wanted to proceed, ma'am. Hmm. Not sure if you muted your line, but we're not hearing you. Uh, let's see. Uh, in the meantime, some of the other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have Commentary proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Can I be heard? Uh let's see. Hold on one second, Thomas in New York. Uh the mail caller proceed.
11: Okay. Uh this is uh Henry from Chicago. Uh, my first time uh reading this book and um I understand why uh uh Pam puts uh context of slavery in regards to the gender war between black males and white males. I mean, I'm sorry, black males and black females. So, uh, it's, you know, it's historically rooted, uh, within the slave context system. So, uh, I totally understand it and she makes a lot of good points, uh, in regards to the root of this issue uh, that we have. Um, I mean, there's, uh, So far, the book is very concise in regards to uh, the problems that she presents and the issues that that we face uh, as a people. Uh, It's very, uh, you know, very, very understandable in regards to her information here. Um, Some of it, uh, you know, the the, the chapter on uh, did Africans, uh, enslave Africans was, you know very uh it was very important uh in regards to you know like the book club cuz we just got through reading uh Barracoon and uh, I kind of feel like we should have read this one first cuz we probably would have appreciated Barracoon a little bit more uh uh in regards to you know the reading the text and I know Barracoon has been you know edited by um white racist uh woman who was supposedly the godmother but um yeah, um uh, Pam later you know, she laid it out clear and concise in regards to the context of uh Africans involved in the African slave trade. Uh also to uh pitting one tribe against the other uh by giving them guns, another reference to Barracoon when the Dahomies were, you know, using French guns. So uh, you know, she uh she uh, uh well this book kind of re- references that you know as well. Um, also to the, the 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 one thing I didn't know is about the popularity of Josiah Henson, uh the Uncle Tom from Harriet Beecher Stowe. Uh, but you know the one thing that I that I you know I was when I was listening and reading it at the same time, you know I'm pretty sure jo- Josiah Henson did not reach you know the uh, the uh, the economic levels of Harriet Beecher Stowe, even though he was the actual character, and you know, you know, she was mentioning how Harry Beecher Stowe's novel, you know, had worldwide recognition, and probably, you know, uh, Henson probably didn't even make one fourth of what Harriet Beecher made off of the story, even though that was his story. But uh, very interesting read. Continue to be reading it, and uh, I'll meet my line
4: much obliged i was i'm so uh hypersensitive to uh name calling when you said uh the real life uncle tom i had a, a reflexive act like what who's he calling uncle tom and I was like, oh yeah that's right that was sorry I was glad i was on mute there thomas in new york thank you for your patience sir Are you muted or maybe you're not able to speak? Not hearing you, Thomas, in New York, not hearing you. All right, we'll assume he's not able to speak just yet. Uh, Other folks, if you have a hand up and we've not heard from you at all, and you would like to comment, proceed.
2: Can I be heard? Retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Greetings. Gus, everyone, uh, first start off. Uh, I, I think I was honored, uh, to have Pam to sign my book. Uh, uh, it has, uh, the date of August the 1st, 2013. I have all four. I have, oh, I, it's four total, Correct. Yes. Books. Yeah, I have all four of them. Uh uh yeah, I did a lot of uh underlining and sectioning off. Uh I think uh she was pretty methodical and concise uh on uh placing the brunt of the blame where it belongs. Uh I say this global system of racist white supremacy. Uh, uh, she mentions about, uh, in detail, uh, the, uh, what is called the transatlantic slave trade, uh, uh, which is one of the strategies that the, uh, white supremacists used, uh, that, uh, created, uh, the present day, uh, arrangement and or relationship between non white people that is not good that's not correct anyway uh in this case- uh black males black females uh and uh i like the i like the way on how she uh in detailed with the uh with the facts with the uh how many was it it was uh uh eight, eight. I'm, I'm thinking, is it eight facts that she had? Uh, I think it was eight. I'm, I'm steady counting. Uh, but anyway, the facts that she have, you know, uh, it's pretty good, uh, and it, it, it would be good for the uh, reader to uh, document, uh, these facts, especially the ones about the uh the beginnings of the uh, slave trade uh white people are very slick in their uh in their uh, uh means of deceiving uh non white people and commanding conversation by stating about uh, black non white people's non white black people's participation in this uh act of evil Uh, incorrectness. And uh, it's designed to uh, primarily to uh, shut up or confuse the uh, non-white person who is seeking the truth uh, to be able to solve the problems uh, where they would state about uh, how we participated in this process. And she gives some very, very, very good points on how to destroy that, uh, that deception. Uh, And uh, the idea of how, uh, I like the idea also how she broke down the, the science during that period of time, the uh, white people were very scientific in their means of torture. Uh, It was, it had, it had a, uh, it had a, They were doing it to get an after effect, uh, to go into place and to stay there, uh, even until, until today. And, uh, so, uh, this book is starting off pretty, pretty, uh, informative in that light for, uh, anyone who is, uh, uh, attempting to search for the truth and to be, uh, enriched uh, educationally on uh, this particular problem that she is talking about, which is between non-white black males and females, the interaction. And that's all I have to say for right now, thank you. Much obliged,
4: retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, Other folks who chimed in with a hand up? Line should be open. Proceed. Councilor. Thomas in New York, yes sir.
1: Sorry, Gus. I was um, I was in a loud place for a second. Um, man, um, I was looking forward to uh, this book um, you know, ever since you announced it was going to be the next book. And um, man, I, it was hard to listen to. I, I must say, um, I found it to be um, very inaccurate historically. Um, but I'm gonna continue listening, and um, I hope it gets to the point where it's more current stuff that she's talking about. I mute myself. Thank you.
4: Which portion was was inaccurate
1: historically? There was several, um, but uh, for argument's sake, I just mute myself. Thank you. I didn't know there was an argument. I just asked which portion
4: was was inaccurate, no argument here. Uh, Let's see, Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, the line should be open.
3: Can I be heard?
4: Yes, ma'am, Ivy.
3: Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Um, I'm not able to comment on the book right now, but I just wanted to say that uh, the program has been stream- streaming at um, Black Talk Radio for about at least 40 or something, forty forty plus minutes. Um, and so what I'm going to try to do in the future is, like, look every so often, like every 15 minutes or something in case, you know, something like this happens again. I want to quickly say I never, absolutely never, go grocery shopping in the morning. And I made sure I decided yesterday I was going to get up and go grocery shopping in the morning um so that i could uh so that i will not miss pam um because if i try to go in the evening because it's been like 90 degrees and all of that so i try to go in the evening i might not come back in time but you know she's amazing i'm trying to see if there was something else i wanted to say real quick i'll say this and forgive me if i'm putting words in your mouth i don't want to do that but i will say that um maybe what he meant by for argument's sake is maybe he is maybe reluctant to say what he disagrees with um because you know pam has passed away and just maybe in honor for her i mean i feel the same way like it's in terms of you know i've stated my my position on um the you know black people selling other black people into slavery and um, i don't believe that and i believe that what was laid out in this book is you know what I hear constantly, and I heard in my view the same um contradictions, but I'm not gonna really go there. I want to do like what you said one time, which was amazing you said, um, what can I use? that's what it boils down to um you you talked about in the past you know how you have disagreed you know with other victims, including that in, including Pam on some things, but it's about what can you use and i don't I just don't want to I just don't want to um Criticize anything that she's ever said. um, Right now, I'm just not in a place where I feel comfortable doing that, and it's it's so much to use. Um, She was brilliant and incredible, and you know that's all have been stated. But um, I'll move my line.
4: Right on, right on. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, Let's see other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary, if we've not heard from you, if you dialed in with a hand up uh, line should be open
12: Hi, can I be heard? Uh,
4: yes ma'am Dropped uh, Mania?
12: Oh, yes sir um, Hello uh, guest and guests um, I don't have the book but I am definitely listening and I'm getting so much out of the um, reading thus far. I found it um, to be very important that she is getting to the root cause of why we are acting, why we do act the way we act. It is rooted in white like supremacy slavery. But I just wanted to say that um, I did a Google search yesterday for the book. And when I did a Google search, I came up with, I ended up finding um, there is a list. Uh, called the um, North Carolina Department of Public Safety disapproval disapproved publications report bulletin board posting. There are 480 matches found. Because um, I cause I researched the book, Van book is on that list as banned book. That was one of the books that's on the banned book list. Um, I could see why they would put that information, you know, put her book on a damn book list, but wouldn't put the hate that, uh, what was the name, I think the other book that you read on the book club about the hate that you give or something like that, that I couldn't even listen to that or your book at all. Um, And also, um, how she um, tied in, you know, the resentments that we end up having, how we end up going against each other, we end up having resentments and due to um, not being allowed to um, be men and women like when she gave the example of the the rape uh, that happened with the um, female and how we end up taking that type of stuff out on each other and um, I can identify with that and I can see how you know how you know the system is the cause of it and that's all I wanted to share um, Gus and uh, thank you and I will mute my line
4: much obliged traptomania uh other folks who dialed in if we've not heard from you at all uh that is hilarious that her book is uh, banned in that area of north carolina but not a surprise at all i've heard that about other texts that are constructed i don't i would i would be curious if some of the uh more infamous books like the the anarchist cookbook uh or uh dr William Pitt, uh, Dr. William Pierce, uh, The Turner Diaries, I'd be curious if some of those texts are on that list as well. But anywho, uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, uh, proceed. Did we nab everybody? We got everybody who had a hand up.
11: can I be heard yes sir uh greetings guys greetings to all the callers as well as the listeners this is in Yame, in nebraska um i just i just wanted to say i've been listening to the cows uh quite frequently recently and you all contributed to um me having more clarity uh the system of racism and white supremacy as well as uh contributing to me be- being better codified as well Um this is my first time reading pam's book i find it quite uh, informing and um I-, I just look forward to more programs i want to say again uh thanks to everyone's efforts and um uh, you all have a, a great rest
8: of the evening
4: Well, right on. Thank you for calling in. Hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Always great to hear first time callers. Um, Did we miss anybody else? Anybody else that we missed completely with a hand up? Okay, I'll assume that we got everybody. Uh, I said that I was going to make an effort to concede my talk time to Pam the Great so that she could be a part of the discussion Uh, since, as I said, she was so generous with her time uh, in speaking with us uh, about this book and many other texts over the years. So uh, this is Pam the Great. Uh, She is talking about how the system of white supremacy Uh, It works to invalidate people in all areas of people activity. That's what the system is set up for uh, and how she hopes that that comes across in this book. Can you just give a little bit because we have that in the description. We're supposed to uh, be addressing ways uh, that we can bolster uh, self-respect from this. uh, It's really a psychological warfare. Um, to really warp mm-hmm. your self esteem and self respect and how you feel about yourself and other black people other non white people um I guess before we get to to that aspect, I guess can you touch on just your observation the impact that this had this this all areas of people activity campaign of invalidating non white people the impact that that has on black people sure
6: um you know I can Start with uh, some of the things that uh, some of the notes that I had. Uh, for example, the, the beauty standards. Uh, I mean, anytime you can get someone to look in the mirror and just like that person in the mirror, everything else is a cakewalk. And so, from the time that we're small, look at the black doll, white doll experiment. Uh, you know, even as the early age of three or four years old, I think the youngest child might have been about four. They know that being brown is bad. So how do you build your validation, self-validation, your self-esteem on that foundation? You can't do it. And the troubling thing is, and Cree actually uh, said this, I believe, in the book review she did on our book, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, and I would suggest that everybody read Cree's review because I got something out of it, and I actually read the book, so, (laughs) and helped write the book. But um, she was saying that she did not understand. How a person, a black person, could actually say out loud, talk about good hair and talk about white features in such a way as though to negate themselves. Now, I don't remember her exact words, but basically, how do you even let that language come out of your mouth? If something is good hair and you've got something different on your head, how do you even, even if you're thinking it, how does it come out of your mouth? What are you thinking when you say that? That's a self, it's self, I don't care if you're talking about another person. You're still invalidating yourself. Uh, but this is not, doesn't mean we're stupid or bad. It means that we've been the victims of a programming that began when we were t- small, small children. And what I would like to see us do is be mindful of the kind of language you use around your children. Stop talking about pretty eyes and, and, and nice skin and good hair. And and, and especially, I think about a child who is listening to their brown-skinned parent talk about the beauty of something that doesn't reflect that parent. If the parent is showing the child that they don't even like themselves, where does your child get their self-esteem from if you don't even like yourself? So a lot of our problems, in my opinion, with the invalidation comes from that person in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? And it's not normal to see ugliness. I don't care what you look like. You can have three eyes. If everybody in your community has three eyes, there's no way in the world you should look in that mirror and see three eyes as abnormal or ugly. But what we've been taught is to look at the mirror and see ourselves and the people who look just like us as less than desirable. So that's one thing I think that is totally devastating to black people is this false beauty standard. And it is false because there's no way in the world, 10% of the world's population can be the standard for 90%. That just doesn't happen. That 10% is actually, if you want to talk about not being the standard, they're actually the non-standard on the planet. So how can they be superior when they're the non-standard? Uh, the words, like you were saying, the words are, are really important. And uh, most of the words that refer to non-white people uh, are negative words, uh, you know, ghetto, underclass urban, you know, uh, inner city, uh, you know, natives, tribes. I mean, just just, uh, burial. I mean, you know, just the the words that we use. And one thing that's troubling is the words that we use against ourselves, like nigger. Somehow nigger has become a value statement. Somehow nigger has become a definition of black people. How does that happen? You know, um, well, it happens through the system of white supremacy. So uh, I've been trying to work on <laughs> on not using the word, and I have to ask myself when I use the word, what am I really feeling? I mean, am I feeling anger? And then who am I angry at? Am I feeling self contempt? Am I just saying things that I've been taught to say? And how does it make me feel? And I've actually been asking myself that: Why do I feel a sense of satisfaction in degrading other black people? Why do I feel a certain a twisted sense of satisfaction in calling black people niggas What is it that's inside of me That I need to really look at um, You know the educational system um, The same thing I mean kids get an overdose of white supremacy And I would strongly advise black people Don't send your kids to predominantly white schools Because they're getting more than a, They're learning more than reading and writing They're learning about how to feel inferior There's a story In uh, Trojan Horace Death of a Dark Nation, it's called Our Children Are Watching, and it was a story about a segregated prom, I believe, in Georgia, and how the black students were in this integrated school, but they had separate proms, and uh, how upset the black students were. They didn't see it necessarily as the white people being racist. They saw that they were being deprived of being with white people. They wanted to know why they couldn't be at the same prom as their white friends, you know, Rather than rejecting the idea that they could have, they could have white friends, they wanted to be with these people. And what some of them did, a small group did, they went and stood outside the door of the white prom, the place where the white prom was being held, a place they were not allowed to enter, so they could stand there and cheer their white classmates as they marched into the prom. When they had the black prom, the white students were welcome there. I don't, think, I don't know if any showed up. But certainly these friends that they had, these white friends, didn't show up to cheer them as they walked into the black prom. This is what our children are learning. They're learning that white people are the validators. And they learn that best when they go to these predominantly white schools where they are getting an overdose of white supremacy. And if they're not allowing these black children to go to a a prom together, you know they're mistreating them through the school year. So... You know, education. Did you want to break in
1: somewhere? <laughs> oh, you're
4: good. rock and roll. You're good. They didn't really tune in to okay, hear me. They okay. tuned in to hear Pam.
6: <laughs> <laughs> he can't hear you.
4: Context of white supremacy. Pam the Great. That was the first time that she came to discuss Black Love is a Revolutionary Act back in 2011. I have many other audio clips. Uh, I just want to pause briefly uh, because I thought the segment, the timing, incredible. After we just read Barracoon and all that incessant chatter about how the negros sold the other negros off into slavery and Alice Walker's forward <clears throat> throughout the book. Uh, Kasula talked about it in great detail, chopping off heads, the Tahomee tribe and everything. Uh, to have Pam address that so forcefully uh, in the text Uh, and she mentioned the article by Dr. uh, Skip Lewis Gates, Henry Lewis Gates already got the cowbell in I go to find this article, New York Times ending the slavery blame game, they always minimize racism, white supremacy it's the race card the blame game As though this, you know, this is some trivial matter when, no, we're talking about terrorism. They don't use this sort of language uh, when they start talking about, you know, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, some dark people that are, you know, menacing us. Anyway, I'm not going to read the whole report, Uh, but this is from April 2010, two years into the Obama presidency, seems like decades ago. Uh, So... I'm going to skip down. It says, <clears throat> How did slaves make it to these coastal forts? The historians John Thornton and Linda Haywood of Boston University estimate that 90% of those shipped to the New World were enslaved by Africans and then sold. To European traders, the sad truth is that without complex business partnerships between African elites and European traders and commercial agents, the slave trade to the new world would have been impossible, at least on the scale it occurred. Advocates of reparations for the descendants of those slaves generally ignore this untidy problem of the significant role that Africans played in the trade. Choosing to believe the romanticized version that our ancestors were all kidnapped unawares by evil white men like Cuntaquinte was in roots. That is a metaphor right there, simile specifically, like as like Cuntaquinte was in roots. Somebody does make a point of pointing out metaphors. Continuing. The truth, however, is much more complex. Slavery was a business highly organized and lucrative for European buyers and African sellers alike. Ooh. I would need like a footnote and like a gargantuan amount of evidence, like I would call like major uh I can't even say falsehood. I would just have to say that is like absolutely gargantuanly incorrect. Like I cannot believe and I don't even blame Dr. Skip Gates on that one. That's so massively incorrect. Like, whoa. That's like me saying that ten planes uh hit fifteen buildings. Uh, on September 11, 2011, and the New York Times lets that fly. I mean, whoa, who is the editor for this who allowed this to ride where this sentence is approved as truth? And they say the truth, how they include that at the beginning. The truth, however, is much more complex. Talk about historically inaccurate, my lord. Slavery was a business highly organized and lucrative for European buyers and African sellers alike. Let me ask you this, uh, Thomas, in New York, if you're not in, uh, I guess whatever you heard that was inaccurate about what was in Pam's work, uh, which do you think is is a greater inaccuracy, if you can judge that? The sentence that we just heard there or what you heard in in the first portion of Black Love is a Revolutionary
1: Act? Um, They were both making the same inaccurate point, Gus. About equal, you'd say? They were equally, um, well, it was the same exact thing. They were both saying the same thing I disagreed with. So, okay, you know, unless, right, uh, you know, so show, show me some slave ships or some documents to prove this, I would be more um, inclined to believe it. Gotcha. Gotcha.
4: Either way, massively incorrect. And this is this uh, report. I said, I'm not going to uh, read the whole thing. Uh, well, let me give you one more paragraph. The African role in the slave trade was fully understood and openly acknowledged by many African-Americans, even before the Civil War. For Frederick Douglass, it was another cowbell. It was an argument against repatriation schemes for the freed slaves. The savage chiefs of the western coast of Africa, who for ages have been accustomed to selling their captives into bondage and pocketing the ready cash for them, will not more readily accept our moral and economical ideas than the slave traders of Maryland and Virginia. Another metaphor. He warned, we are, therefore, less inclined to go to Africa to work against the slave trade than to stay here to work against it. End quote. Uh, And I've said that that is a fantastic racist technique uh, that they will employ, they will get, Uh, And they will find a non-white person who's deceased, quote them to support whatever argument that they want to make in support of racism, white supremacy, or just in support of false logic. Uh, They do this brilliantly. uh, And sometimes they even do it indirectly. I think that's what's happening here. Anyway, you can read the report. I'll post it on Facebook. It's titled Ending the Slavery Blame Game. This is an op ed, as they call it, New York Times. Uh, April 22nd, 2010. Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Harvard University, Harvard. Uh, I had one more audio clip, Pam the Great. Uh, Before I guess I get to that, did anybody, any comments, listeners, comments, folks want to get in?
2: Yes, I I just wanted to uh, uh, report a... uh act of irony. Uh, As the program was starting, I can loudly hear a uh, black male and black female uh, neighbors, quote unquote, of mine, a couple of homes down, arguing. Uh, So uh, uh, the book is relevant (laughs) as far as uh, what Pam was speaking about. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, studying with everybody else.
4: Painfully relevant. I think that was the first thing that I said when we read this book back in 2011, the first time that we had Pam on the program, is that this is not, I said that in the audio clip we started with, this is not a book that you'll be happy about and feel good and and all of that. And our situation reflects that. So, uh, was that Ivy or someone else who had commentary?
3: It was me. Excuse me, I just wanted to say uh, I thought that was uh, amazing information uh, when they brought out that this was shortly after he was um, terrorized by that cop, that race soldier. Um, And I want to say that all of the authors, as well as Mr. Gates, are victims. um, We all have been lied to um, as far as history is concerned. Um, so all of us, I think have, have, have stated things that are not true and we don't mean to, this is, you know, we've just been um, lied to by racists and I wanted to quickly point out that, um, he mentioned about that they all, they kidnapped everybody and, and things like that. There was a, there's a short video, um, where he's talking about, uh, slavery and and saying, you know, that we sold each other and this, that, and the other. And um, he he made a statement to the, the person he was talking to um, and I thought it revealed a lot of truth. And he said, you remember the story you was told when you was little, that they came with nets and this, that, and the other? That spoke to the fact that this is a new lie, that that's not the story that was always told. And I think that, or I'm convinced that the story that he mentioned, even in that article that you just read that is the truth, and all that other stuff is not. And I, he may—it's possible that he embellished some stuff. I mean, I, some stuff he could truly believe—I don't know—but some other stuff, it's possible that he embellished it because of you know how he was terrorized. And I'll just say, you know, either way, you know, Pam and you know she 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 was brilliant, and she she forgot more than I probably will ever know about anything, and and probably especially uh, this problem. But uh, that was it, and I, I'll mute my line.
4: much obliged ivy uh anybody else have anything quickly uh they can say in like 30 seconds or less can Hart. yes sir
11: okay quickly uh interesting that she had a quote uh from uh, dr john henry clark and uh referencing lewis gates uh he wrote a piece uh About Dr. John Henry Clark and other scholars like him as pseudo scholars. So uh, interesting uh, that you know, with Dr. Clark's quote and the reference to Henry Louis Gates. uh, That's it. I'll mean my life.
4: That's so funny. Pseudo science, pseudo scholars. Mm. Anywho. Uh, We will go ahead and get to the second audio segment. We'll have uh, more commentary. We'll have to look at the time and judge accordingly. But uh, we'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. Black Love is a Revolutionary Act by Umoja. uh, Umoja, Pamela Evans Harris, second publication, recognizing her attempted counter-racist efforts. Audio segment number two, Context of White Supremacy.
7: Chapter seven, the destruction of the African female slave. The rape of the African female. Contrary to some anti-historical historians and some misinformed black males, African female slaves did not have sexual intercourse with their slave owners. They were raped. Female slaves did not choose to have sex with their slave owners. They had no choice. The word choose means the slave woman was able to choose her sexual partner and the circumstances under which that sexual activity took place. Certainly, no woman would ever choose to be a slave. It is illogical, anti-historical, anti-humane, and racist to describe the serial rape of Sally Hemings, a slave female, by slave owner Thomas Jefferson, as a romantic relationship. As long as Sally Hemings was a slave, she had no right to deny Jefferson sexual access to her body. She could not give consent as a slave because she had no choice. Anything short of free choice is rape. The mass rape of African girls and women also robbed African males of their ability to do what all men must do to be considered men, to protect the honor and lives of their women, breaking in the African female. Besides rape, the most common punishment for slave women were whippings with ebony brushes, which were described as being capable of taking the skin off down to her heels. Or the choice of a whipping weapon might be a whip made out of plaited cow skin, noted for being so strong that it could take the skin off a horse's back or lay marks on a wooden board. An observer of such a whipping said the woman was lying down and groaning, her left side, where she had been whipped most, appearing in a most mortifying state, and almost covered with worms. Quote, In the state of New Jersey, a female slave several years ago was bound to a log and scored with a knife in a shocking manner across her back, and the gashes were stuffed with salt, after which she was tied to a post in the cellar where, after suffering three days, Death kindly terminated her misery, end quote, from American Slave. The punishments inflicted on slave women had sexual overtones. The slave owner or the overseer who inflicted the punishment often experienced some sort of sexual gratification, sadism, from the pain and suffering of slave women. Slave women who rejected the planter's sexual advances were often raped, flogged, or both. Even when no offense had been committed, some slave owners took delight in tormenting slave women. A slave narrative describes a slave woman screaming, suspended by her wrist from a tree, and the slave master touching her with a stick of fire as she swayed back and forth slave women also incurred the deadly wrath of the white slave mistress. Quote, A woman who tried to repulse her master risked a beating, but one who gave in risked antagonizing the mistress of the household. One ex-slave told the story of a white woman who slipped into a colored gal's room and cut her baby's head clean off because it belonged to her husband. End quote. Source, America's Women, 400 Years of Dolls, Drudges, Helpmates, and Heroines by Gail Collins. Quote, severe beatings were the method most commonly used by slave mistresses to punish black female slaves. Often in a jealous rage, a mistress might use disfigurement to punish a lusted after black female slave. The mistress might cut off a breast, blind an eye, or cut off another body part. End quote, from a slave journal. White female slave owners just as sadistic as white male slave owners. Historical accounts and slave narratives confirm that the white female slave owner was just as sadistic as her male partner. An example given was a female slave owner who used thumbscrews on the thumbs of slave women until blood gushed out, or making them kneel on pebbles on their bare knees while washing the floor, or beating them with the heels of their shoes. Quote, I once saw a young slave girl dying soon after the birth of a child nearly white. In her agony, she cried out, Oh, Lord, come take me. Her mistress stood by and mocked her like an incarnate fiend. You suffer, don't you? She exclaimed. I'm glad of it. You deserve it all and more too. The girl's mother said, The baby is dead, thank God, and I hope my poor child will soon be in heaven too. Heaven, retorted the mistress. There is no such place for the like of her and her bastard." The poor mother turned away, sobbing. Her dying daughter called her feebly, and as she bent over her, I heard her say, Don't grieve so, mother. God knows all about it, and he will have mercy upon me. Her sufferings afterwards became so intense that her mistress felt unable to stay. But when she left the room, the scornful smile was still on her lips. End quote. Source. The incidents in the life of a slave girl written by herself, Jacobs Harriet A., 1813 through 1897. European males preferred importing African females over European females. Quote The Atlantic slave trade was the largest long distance coerced movement of people in history, and prior to the mid 19th century, Formed the major demographic wellspring for the repeopling of the Americas following the collapse of the Amerindian population. Cumulatively, as late as 1820, nearly four Africans had crossed the Atlantic for every European. And given the differences in the sex ratios between European and African migrant streams, about four out of every five females that traversed the Atlantic were from Africa, end quote. Source, a brief overview of the transatlantic slave trade by David Eltis. Quote, no pen can give an adequate description of the all-pervading corruption produced by slavery. The slave girl is reared in an atmosphere of licentiousness and fear. The lash and the foul talk of her master and his sons are her teachers. When she is 14 or 15, her owner, or his sons, or the overseer, or perhaps all of them, begin to bribe her with presents. If these fail to accomplish their purpose, she is whipped or starved into submission to their will. She may have had religious principles inculcated by some pious mother or grandmother, or some good mistress, she may have a lover whose good opinion and peace of mind are dear to her heart. Or the profligate men who have power over her may be exceedingly odious to her, but resistance is hopeless. The white daughters early hear their parents quarreling about some female slave. Their curiosity is excited, and they soon learn the cause. They are attended by the young slave girls whom their father has corrupted, and they hear such talk as should never meet youthful ears, nor any other ears. They know that the women slaves are subjected to their father's authority in all things, and in some cases they exercise the same authority over the men slaves. End quote. Source, incidents in the life of a slave girl written by herself, Harriet A. Jacobs, 1813 through 1897. In celebration of America's first black bitches, Frederick Douglass, 1818 through 1895, former slave, orator, social reformer, statesman, writer, and leader of the abolitionist movement, tells of an incident where his aunt was found in the company of a black male without the slave owner's permission. Quote, Before he, slave master, commenced whipping Aunt Hester, he took her into the kitchen and stripped her from neck to waist, leaving her neck, shoulders, and back entirely naked. He then told her to cross her hands and called her a dead bitch. After crossing her hands, he tied them with a strong rope and led her to a stool under a large hook in the joist, put in for the purpose. He made her get upon the stool and tied her hands to the hooks. She now stood fair for his infernal purpose. Her arms were stretched up at their full length, so that she stood upon the ends of her toes. Then he said to her, Now you dead bitch, I'll learn you how to disobey my orders. And after rolling up his sleeves, he commenced to lay on the heavy cowskin, And soon the arm, red blood amid heart-rending shrieks from her and horrid oaths from him came dripping to the floor. I was so terrified and horror-stricken at the sight that I hid myself in a closet and dared not venture out until long after the bloody transaction was over, end quote. Fast forward to the 21st century, what is the most common word for a female dog that is also used to refer to the black female? Bitch. The mass rape of African females for pleasure and profit. The African female was essential to keep the engines of the slave economy humming. The slave owner used the black female to increase the size and value of his human livestock by forcing her to reproduce against her will and produce children to be sold into slavery. The female, the mother, of every race is sacred because she is the first teacher of the children and instills her values and fears into her children. Breaking the slave mother almost guarantees a broken child who would submit to their enslavement. Is this the main motivation behind the mass media's degradation of the black female today? To produce broken black children? An insane celebration of mass rape. African slaves deeply resented the children born of rape because they were visible and painful reminders of the black male's inability to protect his women from a nation of rapists and the inability of black females to protect their honor. In sharp contrast, some blacks today are so in a of whiteness, brainwashed, they deliberately breed with whites so their children would look less black and less like their hated selves. All political correctness aside, all people from all cultures are not the same. There are distinct differences in origin, behavior, genetics, and temperaments. Slave owners were well aware of these differences when they deliberately bred different African tribes together, then forcibly injected their own European DNA into the mix via rape. The end result was mass cultural, psychological, and genetic confusion and destruction. This genetic and cultural confusion, destruction, along with a force-fed diet of white supremacy, programmed the descendants of slaves to value whiteness over their own genetically superior and powerfully melanated African nests. Mass. mass confusion, self-hatred, and false identities. In a white supremacy society like America, there are only two classifications of people, whites and non-whites. Politically speaking, a black person and a white person cannot produce a half-white, half-black, or biracial child because this political classification does not exist. The term biracial is a manufactured false identity designed to create an imaginary racial caste line between inferior blacks and superior whites. These word and mind games may confuse non-whites, but they do not confuse the white supremacists who deliberately created the skin color confusion to divide and conquer non-white populations. Chapter 8, The Destruction of the African Slave Family The slave system destroyed the African family in America. Despite their best and desperate efforts, slaves were unable to establish stable families on the slave plantations. Males and females were not allowed to marry or show affection for each other, pass along their languages, religions, customs, or traditions to their children, or stop slave owners from abusing, raping, or selling their loved ones. Women who got pregnant in slavery were forbidden to ever speak the name of their child's father, and the fathers were not allowed to claim their babies as part of their blood kin. To add insult to extreme injury, when a slave girl got pregnant after being raped by her slave owner, she was condemned as impure in God's eyes. The Dark Deeds of American Slavery in due time, we arrived in the slave pen at Natchez, Mississippi, and here we joined another large crowd of slaves which were already stationed at this place. Here, scenes were witnessed which are too wicked to mention. The slaves are made to shave and wash in greasy pot liquor to make them look sleek and nice. Their heads must be combed and their best clothes put on. And when called out to be examined, they are to stand in a row, the women and men apart. Then they are picked out and taken into a room and examined. See, a large, rough slaveholder take a poor female slave into a room, make her strip, then feel of and examine her as though she were a pig or a hen or merchandise. Oh, how can a poor slave husband our father, stand and see his wife, daughters, and son thus treated. Sometimes the little children are torn from them and sent far away to a distant country, never to see them again. Oh, such crying and weeping when parting from each other. For this demonstration of natural human affection, the slaveholder would apply the lash or paddle upon the naked skin, end quote. From the life and narrative of William J. Anderson, 24 years a slave, sold eight times, in jail 60 times, whipped 300 times, are the dark deeds of American slavery revealed, 1857. The largest slave auction in recorded history. On March 3rd, 1869, six years before slavery ended, 436 black men, women, children, and infants were brought to a racetrack in Savannah, Georgia on March 3rd, 1859, auctioned off and sold. Quote, Common as are slave auctions in the southern states and naturally as a slave may look forward to the time when he will be put up on the block. Still, the full misery of the event of the scenes which precede and succeeded is never understood till the actual experience come. The first sad announcement that the sale is to be, the knowledge that all ties of the past are to be sundered, the frantic terror at the idea of being sent down south, the almost certainty that one member of a family will be torn from another, the anxious scanning of purchasers' faces, the agony at parting, often forever, with husband, wife, child, these must be seen and felt to be fully understood. Young as I was then, the iron entered into my soul. The remembrance of the breaking up of McPherson's estate, the property of his first owner, is photographed in its minutest features in my mind. The crowd collected round the stand, the huddling group of Negroes, the examination of muscled teeth, the exhibition of agility, the look of the auctioneer, the agony of my mother, I can shut my eyes and see them all. My brothers and sisters were bit off first and one by one, while my mother, paralyzed by grief, held me by the hand. Her turn came and she was brought by Isaac Riley of Montgomery County. Then I was offered to the assembled purchasers. My mother, half distracted with the thought of parting forever from all her children, pushed through the crowd while the bidding for me was going on to the spot where Riley was standing. She fell at his feet and clung to his knees, entreating him in tones that a mother only could command to buy her baby as well as herself and to spare her one, at least, of her little ones. Will it? Can it be believed that this man thus appealed to was capable not merely of turning a deaf ear to her supplication, but of disengaging himself from her with such violent blows and kicks as to reduce her to the necessity of creeping out of his reach and mingling the groan of bodily suffering with the sob of a breaking heart? As she crawled away from the brutal man, I heard her sob out, Oh, Lord Jesus, how long? How long shall I suffer this way? I must have been, then, between five and six years old. I seemed to see and hear my poor weeping mother now. This was one of my earliest observations of men, an experience which I only shared with thousands of my race, the bitterness of which to any individual who suffers it cannot be diminished by the frequency of its reoccurrence, while it is dark enough to overshadow the whole afterlife with something blacker than a funeral pile. Almost immediately, however, whether my childish strength at five or six years of age was overmastered by such things and experiences, from some accidental cause, I fell sick, and seemed to my new master so little likely to recover that he proposed to R, the purchaser of my mother, to take me too at such a trifling rate that it could not be refused. I was thus providentially restored to my mother, and under her care, destitute as she was of the proper means of nursing me, I recovered my health and grew up to be an uncommonly vigorous and healthy boy and man. End quote. Joshua Henson, former slave. A mournful scene indeed, the New Orleans slave market. Quote, the slave auction was one of the most barbaric practices of the harsh system of slavery. The slave trade destroyed families, especially after 1840. Planters could realize substantial profits selling enslaved people, and New Orleans became the center of the trade. The resulting migration involved hundreds of thousands of African Americans. Some moved with their masters, but the migration also tore apart slave families residing on different plantations. Others were sold on the block. End quote. Solomon Northrup remembers the New Orleans slave market in his 12 Years a Slave, narrative of Solomon, a citizen of New York, kidnapped in Washington City in 1841. After slavery ended, most slaves took owners' last names. Prior to 1865, slaves had no surnames, only first names and the names of the people they belonged to. For example, Black Joe belongs to Mr. X, a slave owner. The importance of surnames is critical because they are proof of identity, heritage, or knowledge of self. Quote, we didn't have a name. The slaves always known by their master's last name. And after we was freed, we just took the last name of our masters and used it. After we had got our freedom papers, they had our ages and all on them, but there was law, so we guessed at our ages, End quote. Clayton Holbert, former slave. Quote, my father was a slave, but I don't know where he was born because he said when he knew anything, he was in a house with the white people. And they never did tell him anything. Where I was born, it was a mighty fine country. And they was awful mean to the colored people in that country. My own pappy was named Stephanie. I think he take that name because when he was little, his mammy called him Estefani. That mean a skeleton. And he was a skinny man. He belonged to the Grayson family. And I think that his master's name, end quote. According to the 2000 U.S. Census, over 90% of the 163,036 people in the U.S. with the last name Washington were black. There are more black people with the same last name of the first U.S. president and slave owner, George Washington, than any other last name in America. From Proud Africans to a Race of Non-People Anand people have no knowledge of self, of their true history, who they used to be, or where they came from. Anand people must rely on the manufactured identities of those who robbed them of their heritage. Pure African bloodlines were destroyed as warring tribes were forced to breed under terrible conditions of slavery. The slave owners forcibly and deliberately injected their foreign genes into the racial mix to create maximum genetic destruction and maximum psychological confusion. This traumatic blood mix may explain the high level of psychological confusion and conflict within the black collective, as our genetics, bloodlines, temperaments, and physical differences wage war from without and from within. Fast forward to the 21st century, what is the most common word for a male animal that mates with a female animal, a bitch, that is also used to describe black males? Dog, aka D-A-W-G. Quote, everything that is wrong with black people today, other than normal human frailties, was caused by our contact with Europeans, white people. End quote. Umoja.
4: Context of white supremacy. That will wrap things up for this week. Uh, We will pick up next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, We should be chapter nine, 500 years of justice denied. That should be next Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The number, 641-715-3640. The code, five six four 943 pounds Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. I'll try and keep an eye out and see if there are folks who we have not heard from at all. See if I can get them first. Uh, but if you dial in, if you know you have a question, something you would like to share, go ahead. Get a hand up. Please do not lollygag. Uh, person who dialed in uh, AET, uh, did you have commentary you wanted to share? Your line should be open. AET, those are the letters that are coming up uh, for your handle. AET, did you have commentary? Uh, if you're on a headset, uh, line should be open. If you're just listening, that's fine too. Um, I just tuned in. Um, I have no comment. Thank you. Yes, sir. Other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up, line should be open. Uh, codified software developer in Wisconsin, line should be open. Proceed. Oh, uh,
5: good evening, Gus. Uh, good evening uh, to all the callers and listeners. Um, so, I, I've i actually begun reading this book and I'm pretty far ahead. This is a, a pretty engaging book to read, definitely very, um, it's a page turner. Um, so, I just wanted to touch on some of the things in the book. On pa- uh, page 10, uh, Mojo writes, after our original African culture was destroyed during slavery and Blacks were forced to integrate into the white culture, we began to imitate this, the dysfunctional relationship between the white male and white female. To this day, the materialistic, sexist, and antagonistic white male-female relationship has become the standard for most Black relationships. I thought that was just incredibly profound. I don't really know what else to say about that, but I thought it was incredibly profound. As far as I think Ivy touched on this earlier, uh, when Dr. Henry Louis Gates, um, when he wrote that article, Ending the Slavery Blame Game, um, just what, it, you know, it, it calls to mind sort of, you know, President Obama had to bring the race soldier to the White House and have a beer with him. What did Dr. Gates have to do in order to keep his job? Um and and just reminds us that, that we're all victims, including the people that we assume are so white-identified. I remember watching um, one of Dr. Gates's, uh, you know, the PBS series he has, Finding Our Roots or something to that effect. And he was actually in Ireland, I guess, and he was meeting these Irish males who he said were his cousins. And he walked up to them and he was like, oh, you're my cousin. And they're looking at him like he's insane. And I just, at that time, you know, I just thought, well, just how, how confused do you have to be to do that? Um, And to expect that they would receive you warmly uh, like you were just a long lost cousin they were looking for. Um, I know that's a simile, but, um, and and I, I just, I just always, Always keep that in mind when I read anything Dr. Gates has to write. Uh, as far as the last reading that we we just finished, uh, on page 43, Mass Confusion, Self-Hatred and False Identity, speaking about the term biracial, um, I have a, a friend who, or not a friend, but associate, who is uh, has a white parent and who the other parent, non-white parents from Papua New Guinea, and she was actually born in New Guinea, Uh, when her white father brought her to Wisconsin, uh, he classified her as black. And so I thought that was really timely, just that whole idea of biracial really doesn't exist, and white people are the ones who do the classifying. Uh, Last but not least, page 49, um, a mournful scene indeed, the New Orleans slave market, uh, the slave trade destroyed families, especially after 1840. Uh, I know this is in your archives, Gus. Um, the Half Has Never Been Told Slavery in the Making of American Capitalism really details how uh, enslaved people were commodified, heavily commodified during that time. Uh, I would definitely recommend that people uh, listen to that and uh, or read the book. With that, I'll mute my line. Thanks for allowing me to share.
4: Yes, ma'am. Edward. Baptists. Definitely learned a lot from that one way back when. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, I forgot to mention, Delectable Negro. They had that section in the first audio segment where part of the punishment was that they lashed the slave, black slave, and then doused them with salt and pepper. And then they had the portion that I think was in Delectable Negro about having Uh, A piece of pork uh, burned over them and dripped down over the black person. Delectable Negro, Negro, Vincent Woodard. uh, Human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. Slave culture. Delectable Negro. Cow's Book Club. Other folks we've not heard from at all. Or other folks uh, who have not shared since the second audio segment concluded. Yes ma'am here. Yes sir, Mr. Dermy-Four.
8: I- okay, uh uh the part I uh, I didn't uh, mention before was concerning the media. Uh she uh, Oh, she uh the co-authors and Pam posed a question on why Oh, why are the uh, Western media and academic community so determined and so desperate to hide the truth about the transatlantic slave trade? Now, <clears throat> that's a very important question. And then, you know, you can draw your own conclusion. You know, but the whole thing is... Uh, there is uh, a need to not be identified. It's, it's like uh, Mr. Neely Fuller said: they hide in plain sight. All this create, all of this chaos was created by them, but nobody can be identified as having uh, created this mess. Also, uh, in the mass rape of African females for pleasure and profit, she talks again about the mass media's aggregation uh, of the black females today. The mass media and the way that they communicate ideas is very important. So they get this across you. You could be believing a lie. You could be an honest person and actually research something, but you actually uh, researched a lie. Um, The largest slave auction in recorded history, 436 um, black men, women, children sold at a racetrack. And then she mentioned the slave markets and you know, I could drive past one of those auction houses. I think it was the same one that Solomon Northrup was held in when he was in Washington. They still had that that thing erect. Uh, another mention of a book that we did in the book study, uh, 12 Years a Slave, Solomon Northrup, um, when she was talking <clears throat> about the... Uh, the New Orleans slave market. And, um, oh, just one last thing, this quote, everything that is wrong with black people today, other than normal human frailties, was caused by our contact with European white people. Umoja. I'll mute my line, Gus. Thanks for taking the call.
4: Much obliged, Mr. demry for Great quote. Assessment of proper assessment of blame, culpability, if you will. Other folks who have not commented since the second audio segment concluded, proceed. Can I be heard? See, we'll get uh, Henry in Chicago. Uh, we'll get retired firefighter next. Okay.
11: Just real quick. Uh, the, uh, the, um, the example of the female slave who was uh, found dead or tied to a post-seller, I looked at it and it said the state of New Jersey. Now, memory serves me, I thought the state of New Jersey was a union state, an anti-slavery state. So that right there was like, you know, an eye-opener to me in regards to, you know, uh, and and I've always, you know, I've always uh, heard and researched about you know slavery also being in the north as well so uh I'm glad uh, that was pointed out uh in this and also in regards to the term biracial uh what was so funny is I had a conversation with um a victim of white supremacy uh, who has a uh, who has a white parent and a non-white black parent and he says that out of all the people who wants to know, you know, what is he, quote, unquote, mixed with, the only people that have asked him that were black people. He says no white person has asked him what was he mixed with. They automatically assumed he was black. Uh, that'll be all. I will mute my line.
2: Hilarious. Uh, thank you for your patience, retired firefighter. Yes, I uh like the uh the way that uh the author Pam uh has is uh, uh scientifically uh uh giving the uh background history of what we notice uh within ourselves and collectively non white black people, males and females, uh due to the uh the damage that goes back centuries uh in a in the most diabolical and scientific way, uh just another thought of irony uh his carcass is lying in state, I believe still today uh but you never hear or I haven't heard any talk about John McCain's Uh, family history of slave owners, which I read myself about a couple of days ago. And I was wondering if anybody else uh, have heard about that background. I haven't. And he has he continuously have disassociated himself with the background. Interesting. Did Did you have any other commentary or was that all you wanted to share? No, that's it. That's it. I know I normally say <laughs> that's all I have to say, but that's it. Thank you.
4: Much obliged, yes, John McCain the Great, who also was not a supporter of the King holiday if memory serves. Lengthy record, but anywho. Correct. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary, proceed.
3: Can I be heard?
4: Greetings. Heard? I heard both of you. Well, NAB, I'll be first.
3: Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Thomas. Oh, man. A couple things, like, uh, as far as the the biracial thing, that was, uh, that stuck out to me as well. Um, That's been mentioned a lot. Um, I like how she said racial confusion. Reminds me of uh, Mr. Fuller um, and how he talks about there's like a thousand classifications uh, for non-white people and only one for white people. As far as the degraded image of, uh, black women man we have our images that we are we are whores we are ugly we are uh, disease-ridden um we are masculine um, so many things and the interesting thing is black men's um image is degraded as well and it just it really makes me mad um Black men's image is that you guys are criminal, raping, murderers who should be killed. Um, and the interesting thing about that is, in my view, black men are the most popular group of people in terms of people wanting to be with them in relationships. I don't know if it's because of the the, the statement that's put out there or the idea that's put out there about you guys is um, you know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying not to say it, but your your private parts. I'll put it that way. That you know, you guys are are well endowed. That's 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 what you guys are. That's what they say about y'all. And so I don't know if it's that, but I think that like all of the relationships that you guys get into with other women that are not black, I from my observation most of that, maybe even all of it, is from them pursuing you in some kind of way, whether they're coming up directly to you and asking you for your phone number or making eyes at you or just making it known that they at least want you to approach them. And I think that's very interesting given the the degraded image um, that you guys have um, and, or that is imposed on you. Um, I want to say that the, the narrator, I think that she's doing a great job. I think that, you know, she she's reading at like the perfect pace, I can really um, take in and, and think about and means over what uh, she's saying. And I just wanted to quickly ask you, Gus, you know, you, you know, you have a a popular voice. Most people like your voice, probably men and women, um, but not like, as far as the men, not like in a homosexual way. It's just very pleasant, but I wanted to know if you could remember what Pam said about your voice, and that was it. I'll mute my line uh it
4: wasn't uh anything elaborate i mean she wasn't writing uh poems or sonnets uh to gus about uh my voice and i think she it happened to be on a live uh program but i think it was just that you know she uh something something i'm here and this was years ago but it was just something that she appreciated uh how how i sounded uh reading reading her work i think it was something to that effect Don't quote me verbatim. Uh, If that is it, uh, thank you, Thomas, in New York for your patience. Proceed.
1: Good evening again. Um, Man, Pam hit it on the head. Um, I always um, pay attention to um, that white woman um, during slavery time. Her interaction with the black, um, or the the, um, people being classified as black, um, their their sexual relations with their husbands, how they treated, yes sir, and they're mistreated inside that house. Um, um, It's it's in a lot of you know things that I've read over the years where um, I always pay attention to that because, uh, as I always stress, white women are the most dangerous predator on the planet, uh, white men are second and the children third. So, um, this, this is like, uh, I'm glad she's pointing that out. And, um, the incorrectness of, um, you know, just, just the relationship in general, just how it's used as a power tool, not only over the women, but over the men and how they use the women as a power tool over the children to, um, you know, I think instill that uh, fear that they have of the white man. You know that their child might not have. You know, but they put it in them, and I think that happened for years um, during slavery. Um, ah, man, that the <laughs> term she keeps calling them Africans. I just oh ah, But um, you know, I would just say this. You know, um, the white men, people classified as white, classified themselves as that. The, the most powerful people on the planet today. Um, and it's because they're very precise with um, their intent to be dominant, and um, they have to in order to survive. Um, for the 16th, 17th, 18th, and to the mid-19th century, their greatest achievement was this transatlantic slave trade. And how come they can't prove it happened? I mean, they love gloating. They love, They got memorials of every murder they had ever, Gonna be a statue of murder of John McCain up pretty soon, but they can't show us one slave ship, they can't show us any documentations of proof, um, any any records to indicate anywhere near anything going on that's that great on the massive scale the way they wrote about it. I look at it very suspiciously. I mute my mind thinking.
4: Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, any other folks have questions, comments that they want to get in?
5: Can I be heard really quickly, Doug? in response to Thomas?
4: Codified software developer.
5: Uh, yes, sir. I just wanted to mention um, to Thomas's point about the slave ship, uh, my son is a big fan of the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and they have this
0: huge...
5: Um, exhibit of all these various ships and vessels, sailing vessels uh, from maybe the 11th, 12th century on. They've got, you know, Chinese vessels and all sorts of extra, all sorts of ships. One ship they don't have in there is the slave ship. And I've always wondered why that was. So I just wanted to say that. Um, Thank you. I'll meet my line. Can
3: I be here really quick, Gus?
4: Uh, give me one second. Uh, the person at 3098, did you have commentary?
13: Yes, I did. May I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Good evening, everybody. Um, first, let me um, offer my condolences to the cows listeners and you guys for your long time. Uh, the great. Uh, with that said, I want to ask, I want to uh, offer a question. Um. Uh, former, former, I guess a uh, former listener, or uh, uh, a former listener and Cree uh, 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 uh okay. sí. uh, uh, Seven. She offers, she offers a, um, offers a, a varying point of um, that anti-blackness was a byproduct of uh, uh well, pardon me uh white supremacy anti is a byproduct of anti-blackness i want to know what anybody uh listeners thought of that and um i am really enjoying so far listening uh, but my, my my main question was that the uh is a uh, competing view or competing concept that uh white supremacy was a byproduct of anti-blackness but then I thought about it, so, so what then caused anti Blackness? I wanted to know anybody's um, uh, listeners uh, view about that. Um, well,
1: uh, thank you. Much
4: obliged. Uh, sir, we can address that tomorrow. Uh, I've said the book club is specifically exclusively for topics that are about what we are reading right now, and that does not seem to be in any way related to Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, so if you Want to jingle tomorrow, compensatory calling, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, You can give us the question and listeners will gladly give their thoughts uh, and they'll have an extra day to think it over. But sticking on topic with the book club, uh, did any other folks have commentary related to Black Love is a Revolutionary Act? Can I say one more thing? Uh, Let's see. Red in Nevada, did you have... Hold on one second, Thomas in New York. Of course. uh, Red in Nevada, did you have commentary that you wanted to get in Red in Nevada?
9: May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, thank you. Just real quick, um, I also appreciated the... Um, commentary about the white women and what they did. I feel like um, there's not enough um, information about white women's roles in, um, in in slavery. And I know I've um, had a discussion with a victim about that and just how we really don't understand that. And then also, I, I can't remember if it was from the first audio segment or from this one, but I also appreciate how just the separation between, you know, the, well, even though I guess "quote unquote" whites were the fo- were the first slaves. They were still humanized. They they weren't turned into animals. And then you know how she elaborates in how you know we call each other bitches and dogs and hoes and whatever. So um, I I at least appreciated that. And I'll, I'll meet my line. Thank you for allowing me to share again.
4: Much obliged.
12: Can I be heard?
4: Is that you, Draptomania?
12: Yeah, I just wanted to say, um, I wanted to thank Thomas for his perspective about, um, you know, uh, the evidence uh, in regards to um, the flagships, how come none of it, we don't have the actual evidence. And we still have the tombs of Egypt and all this other other evidence regarding um, what we did in the past. Why isn't that, you know, um, being produced? Um, It just gave me a whole other perspective. I never really thought about it from that perspective. And I just wanted to thank Thomas for that. And I'll meet my line.
4: Much obliged. Did we nab all of the folks? Nobody got missed. Uh, Irie in New Orleans, did you have commentary? Hello, um,
12: thank you. Um, Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Gus. Um, Three things, they're short. The first thing is when I um, went to a time and clock museum in Evanston, Illinois, there was an area dedicated to nautical um, devices, you know, compasses and, and other timekeeping things. And they were during the seventeen uh sixties and seventies and and a little bit older. I suspect that some of these things were probably on some of the the ships that you know they used for the slave trade, but they didn't label it that way they they you know labeled it as exploration um you know and mercantile uh, uh stuff like that um there was Okay, I can't remember the other thing. Um I was in and out listening um during my rides and um the one thing I caught last was about the physical torture of African women and it reminded me of a book that I have now called The American Slave Coast by Ned and Constance Sublet and if I can real quick it'll take maybe a minute there's a passage that I want to share because it speaks to the torture that was also committed, um, like mentally, to, to African women um, during slavery. So women with babies in hand were particular, were in a particularly cruel situation. Babies weren't, weren't worth much money, and they slowed down coffles. William Wells Brown hired out a slave trader named Walker, recalled seeing a baby given away, on the road and this is a quote from him soon after we left st charles the young child grew very cross and kept up noise during the greater part of the day mr walker complained of its crying several times and told the mother to stop its child goddamn noise or he would the woman kept trying to keep the child from crying but could not we put up at night, with an acquaintance of Mr. Walker in the morning, just as we were about to start, the child again commenced crying. Walker stepped up to her and told her to give the child to him. The mother tremblingly obeyed. He took the child by one arm, as you would a cat by the leg, walked up, ma'am. into the house. Uh,
4: ma'am, let's, yeah. uh, yes, I'm ma'am. stop there. I'm only stopping there because they were guests on the program, uh, so... I'm sorry. It's no apologies because it's a great book. People can go. I would encourage folks to go in the archives, but we are at the three hour mark. And I just want to pause right there. But great uh, outside information to support what Pam was talking about in the text and the American Slave Coast. Phenomenal work. uh, February 2016. They were guests on the program the day after the Super Bowl. I remember it vividly. That's what I was doing with my Sunday. Not preparing for the big game. I was reading their book which is uh, supports exactly what Pam just said. The mandatory rape of black females uh, and they have lots of great information in the text. Uh, let's see. I think we did nab all the folks I saw with hands up. Uh, Thomas in New York if you can get your comments in in 20 seconds. That way we can wrap things up.
1: Gus, you have a nice evening, sir. I enjoyed this um this um, conversation. That's all.
4: Grand. We will call it a broadcast. We'll pick up next uh, Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Looking forward to it. Black love is a revolutionary act. Much obliged to our narrators. Woof. Great effort! Uh, really appreciate uh, having multiple. Even though we only had the one narrator for this week, we will have multiple uh, narrators as we proceed. So, much obliged to all of their diligent efforts. Great job! Super professional, excellent, high quality work. Thank you, thank you, thank you to the narrators. With that, uh, we will wrap things up. If you want to write in any comments about the book, uh, observations, questions, uh, feel free. We should have more weeks to go uh, with the text so you can email them untiljustice at gmail.com. With that, uh, sobriety would be best. We heard that in the text this evening uh, that drunkenness was unheard of prior to all of this slavery, white terrorism. I think that's something we could pick back up, apply that uh, stringently in our counter racist code. Sobriety would be best. Uh, I think Dr. Welsing, many other grand sisters, would strongly endorse us taking great care of ourselves physically, especially preserving our brain computer so that we can make great decisions, be prolific writers like Pam the Great or whatever it is, uh, and solve this problem permanently. Certainly, while we are out and about in a vehicle, we want to be sober and buckled up every single time. Uh, let's do everything that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in
13: nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim, your brother. Problem.
8: You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut
4: up. The man has programmed my Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Mm-hmm. <laughs>